from finding the best buttery lobster roll in Maine to ordering biscuits and gravy in Tennessee. Our guests today on Travel with Rick Steves know how to experience the local flavors of America. The way we identify ourselves, so many of us, is by our food heritage. It's a great way to really discover the culture of this country with your taste buds. For more than 30 years, Michael and Jane Stern have been on the road, sampling the local specialties in every state in the Union and writing home about it. They join us today on Travel with Rick Steves to spill the beans about some of the most memorable comfort food they've found driving across the USA. We might even get them to weigh in on some touchy topics of regional pride, like barbecue and chili. Every part of the country has its own chili, but truly Texas is king. And we'll check in with a jet pilot who offers his insider tips for reducing the stress and anxiety that often come with flying. Come along for some fun discoveries in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. If you've ever been frustrated by the food choices you find off the interstate, then we'd like you to meet Jane and Michael Stern, America's road food experts. They'll inspire us in just a little bit to experience some of the best flavors of America for ourselves. Let's start off today with a call to a listener who lives just outside Rockford, Illinois, and also happens to be a pilot for a major airline. He wrote us recently to offer some insider tips for reducing the stress that often comes with flying. We caught up with him on his cell phone between flights. We have Mike on the line in Poplar Grove, Illinois. Mike, thanks for your call. Uh, hello, Rick. How are you? Doing well. Got some ideas on traveling for us? I guess a few, Rick. Uh, I've been a, uh airline pilot for almost 30 years now. I've been traveling all the major airports in the U.S. and uh, Europe for the last 10 or 12 years. So, yeah, I've seen passengers in all states of mind uh, going through airports. I think I've learned a few things about how to make travel a lot easier and more pleasant. Now, Mike, you know, to me, I listen to a lot of people grousing about different things as they travel, and they always say the most stressful... uh, part of the trip is the flying, and I find it, it works quite well. What, what is your advice? How can people get through the, the airline experience uh, smoothly? It certainly can be stressful. It, it can be stressful for me and other uh, crew members also. We, we encounter a lot of the same problems that the average traveler does, especially the uh, week-to-week business traveler. The first thing that uh, is the hardest for me to do always is to allow myself more time for uh, getting to the airport and uh, making connections. Sometimes I think it's a waste of time, but uh, you never know what's going to happen at the last minute, and the extra 15 minutes time at the airport sure does make it a lot less stressful. You know, that's one of my rules of thumb also, and much as I do a lot of my life in a split-second kind of very carefully timed way, when I go to the airport, I don't want to start out all stressed out and sweaty. I want to give myself a a relaxing beginning, and also be able to incur two or three setbacks as far as traffic jams or or mess-ups along the way and still not risk missing my flight. You know, I always encounter a traffic jam or two on the way to uh, Chicago O'Hare or New York Kennedy Airport. Just have to allow for it. Makes it a lot less stressful getting there. What's another lesson you've learned from all of your travels? The first thing I learned is pack light. I know that's one of your big lessons also. I carry the 22-inch roller board. I will carry a backpack with me also if I'm planning on doing some shopping overseas and bringing back uh, Christmas gifts to friends. Does the airline prefer that we pack light enough to carry it on, or do they not like the congestion upstairs and wish everybody would just send everything downstairs? Boy, Rick, I don't know. Uh, it seems like with the fees they charge these days, they'd rather everybody check bags. But <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's a new financial spin on it. But, you know, if you, if you pack light, the airline's saving money because it's expensive to fly the weight. It does. The weight is included in the average that they use for passengers when they figure the, the fuel that they need and the altitudes that they can fly at. But... Uh, It seems like in most cases it goes most smoothly if people have one carry aboard item plus the purse or briefcase. And that way nobody else has to handle your bags. All you got to do is remember to get your stuff when you leave the airplane. We're all the time finding cell phones or uh, purses or wallets, uh, even passports on airplanes. My pet peeve when it comes to flying, Mike, and I think it's my only pet peeve, is... It takes forever to get 
200 people onto an airplane or 100 or whatever the size of the plane is, and if everybody just went straight to their seat, then you could fiddle around and stow stuff upstairs and get organized. But but people stop in the middle not realizing 50 people are waiting behind them for every minute that they're uh, adjusting their luggage. That's right. They, they seem to demand their uh, space in the aisle for a few minutes without uh, looking around. Now, Mike, you've been a pilot for 30 years, you said, right? Yeah. Now, which airports get it in our country, in the United States? Which are the, the well-designed ones? Or well-organized, well-run? Orlando's well-organized because it has to be with all the uh, inexperienced vacation travelers. Hmm. Atlanta is uh, pretty well designed because everything is 90 degrees, either straight ahead or off to the left or right. There's no <laughs> angles to follow. And it's laid out for pilots really well, too. It's, it's pretty efficient. It's probably easier to identify the bad ones. And those are the ones that have been major airports for a long, long time and have already established their uh, uh, buildings and taxi routes and can't be changed easily, you know. So can you share us your uh, gripe there? What What is the one that you wish would uh, figure it out better? Oh, well, Kennedy a nightmare sometimes. Kennedy, right. when, uh, Weather hits. But at the same time, on the other coast, you've got Los Angeles and San Francisco that are uh, pretty good operating airports when the weather turns bad. Huh. And, of course, uh, right there in your area, Seattle, uh, it's designed for bad weather. So it operates real well almost all the time. I'm surprised Chicago doesn't handle the weather better. You know, they're starting to. They've got that new runway. I think people will uh, start to see an improvement in the uh, on-time performance there. I have a next-door neighbor who is an air traffic controller, and she tells me that they've changed a lot of their uh, communications and uh, Hmm. navigation procedures there. So things are working a little bit smoother for them also. Because uh, I remember there was a time when a lot of uh, seasoned travelers, if they're flying from the east to the west in the United States, changing somewhere in the middle, would try to avoid uh, O'Hare. Well, they probably still do, but uh, uh, it, it's improving. You've probably landed at airports all over the world. I know that there's a few airports that are famous among pilots as being more demanding and, and a little more uh, a little more dangerous to land in. I think Dubrovnik is one of those. In the United States, uh, are there any airports that, that really... Um, require a little more skill to land uh, safely and smoothly? Anywhere there's mountains. I've just spent the last two months flying in and out of Zurich, Switzerland. Right. Really, on a beautiful day, it's a phenomenal place to uh, look out the window and uh, see on approach or uh, on takeoff. But when you get into the weather, you know, those pilots, they're doing four or five times many things every minute as they normally do. So when you got mountains and you got visibility problems, that's where you have to draw on your experience. Yes, it is. Uh, the South America airports always demand a lot of the uh, flight crews going in and out because South American countries provide a little bit less information for the pilot. Now, in my travels, and I've traveled all over this planet, you're impressed in some countries about how just clueless they are. They can't put up a traffic signal, and then you use their their national airline, and they seem to be as competent as the Scandinavians. Is a country that is a mess from an infrastructure and, uh, you know, just a developing nation that, that, that is chaotic, do you feel like they don't have the backup supplies and the talented uh, pilots? Or when you get into that realm, is everybody about as competent? There's no better pilots in the world than those from uh, the U.S., France, Great Britain, and uh, Scandinavian countries. You know, they've all got a, a great background. In the lesser developed countries, they're coming along nicely. Some of them are excellent. They all meet the standards that I think you need for uh, adequate safety. But they certainly have definite room to improve. Have you ever heard of Garuda Airline? Yes. One of their planes drowns every year, they say. Just about. It's the domestic airline in Indonesia, right? Yes. And they just about operate in some of the worst conditions uh, weather-wise of anybody. They're always fighting a monsoon yeah. or a volcano someplace. You know, they, they do encounter a lot of problems that I've encountered probably twice in my career. Mm. They encounter on a seasonal basis. Yeah, I had a very scary landing in Jogjakarta. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you talk to the crew afterwards? Uh, no, I didn't. I just talked to the Lord and thanked him for my <laughs> continued well, existence on this planet. Well, that's nice. I'm glad you did that. No, the, the crews would enjoy you talking to them. 
I always thank the, the pilot and the crew on the way out. I just feel like they do a great job, and I just think they need to be acknowledged, you know? Well, that's great. And I tell you what, you know, travel, especially in the airlines, has been a hassle for the last uh, 10 or 12 years, and there's a number of reasons for it. And the airlines all receive a lot of complaints and suggestions on how to improve. But uh, the crew members, especially the flight attendants, who uh, are trying to help the passengers and take care of them the very most, probably don't get enough recognition. And I really would suggest to uh, passengers now that a good way to improve the airline service is to find somebody on every trip that you feel you can write a letter or just postcard to the airline about their uh, superior service. Every one of those employees gets a copy of that, gets recognized by their supervisor, and not only that, the word gets spread around through the uh, company newspapers, newsletters, things like that. Getting recognition like that, and sometimes a small reward from the company, like a special travel pass or so, makes people want to provide a lot better service to the passengers also. That would be the very constructive, positive way to get everybody excited about doing a better job in the airline industry. It's an exciting business. It's a fun business. I wouldn't have been doing it for the last 30 years if uh, I didn't get some enjoyment out of it. I think so many travelers are creative about being upset and complaining when it comes to flying. And as far as I'm concerned, if I, when I'm flying to Europe or something, if I land safely on the day I hope to, it's been a wonderful success. So if somebody wants to send a thanks about some uh, good work that was done by somebody on the, on the flight, they could just Google the airline and find the mailing address and uh, send it there and, and put the flight attendant's name in the, in the letter. Is that right? Yes, it is. Or even if they don't remember the flight attendant's name or the pilot's name, they can just say, my flight from one city to the other city on whatever date it was, right. whatever time it was. Nice. And if they know the flight number... All those records are uh, in the supervisor's hands immediately. Mike, can you tell us what airline you've worked for for 30 years? Uh, several. 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 All right. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, the, the first one's no longer in business. That, that, I thought, was a great airline also. It was Eastern Airlines. Eastern, all right. I worked with an awful lot of really great people there. Yeah. And now I work for Delta Airlines. Delta, all right. People ask me what my favorite airline is, and I don't have one. I, I'm just very thankful for the work they do, and uh, they get me there. So Mike Metcalf from Poplar Grove, Illinois, thank you so much for giving uh, an insight into the airline industry from a pilot's point of view. Thanks, Rick. All right. Happy travels. You too. See ya. Saturday, I'm running wild, and all the lights are changing right between Moving through the crowds, I'm pushing chemicals and rushing in my bloodstream. Babylon. America's road food experts join us next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK or by email radio at ricksteves.com. Can you teach a tongue twister in Polish? With pleasure. Are you ready? Szczebrzeszynie chrząż brzmi w trzcinie, a szczebrzeszyn z tego słynie, że tam sobie chrząż brzmi w trzcinie. What did you say in English, Kasia? I mean, in English it goes, it's kind of a ridiculous line. Uh, there is a cricket playing its songs in the town of Szczebrzeszyn, 
and he's having a lot of fun doing this. <laughs> Say it again, Kasia. Thank you very much. So much fun to think about a road trip. And when I think about a road trip, I think about road food. Got to fill up the tank and you got to eat. You know, an integral part of the fun of a road trip is memorable food on the road. Not necessarily healthy food on the road, but good food, fun food part of the fun of a road trip. And I'm joined today by experts on road food, Jane and Michael Stern. They wrote the best-selling book called Road Food. Their new book is 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Jane and Michael have been traveling the country, uh, writing up their finds on the road ever since the 1970s. They wrote a column for Gourmet Magazine. They've got a regular spot on the Splendid Table. And they join us today to talk about the latest in road food across the United States. Jane and Michael, thanks for being with us. Great to be here, Rick. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, and I think you're going to get me salivating here because I'm going to learn a lot about what's fun down the road when it comes to eating. How do you guys define road food? For us, what road food means is those one-of-a-kind restaurants by which you really remember a trip. You know, for us, eating isn't just something you do when you get from A to B. Eating is the point of going anywhere because we really think that it's those unique restaurants serving sometimes unique regional specialties that are what traveling is all about. It's the best way to feel where you happen to be is to eat what they eat there. What what road food isn't is chain restaurants. You know that the horror of traveling from Maine to California and you feel like you keep seeing the same thing over and over and over and over again no matter where you are. For our readers, we try and provide them a unique experience. If they're in Louisiana, we will direct them to the best inexpensive Regional Louisiana eats, same for Montana, California, Washington, D.C., and Washington State of. Yeah, now that must be sort of an ethic of a good road tripper is not to eat the same stuff everywhere, you know. And, and, and you could very easily travel to every state in the country and eat from exactly the same menu if you were a slacker when it comes to road tripping. Exactly. If your point was simply to go from one place to another as efficiently as possible, you could do it and eat the same meal three times a day every day. But, you know, for us, the joy of traveling is discovery. And, you know, we love to eat. And the joy of eating is discovering new and unusual things to eat. And as you said, we've been doing this for some 30 years, and we are still discovering things (laughs) we have never heard of on the road. In fact, we were just in Vermont, and we discovered ploys. P-L-O-Y-E-S. 35 years of food running, never heard of a ploy. And what is a ploy? A a ploy festival. Actually, that was in Maine. Jane gets her states confused. (laughs) Whoops. A ploy is an Acadian pancake made of buckwheat. And it's fundamental to the diet of the people in northernmost Maine. It's farm food. And people used to make these for big families. They're inexpensive. Every diner in northernmost Maine, instead of serving toast on the side of bacon and eggs, Hmm. will serve you a stack of buckwheat pancakes. It kind of looks like a big crumpet. In your book, you you talk about a concept called food anthropology, where the culture of a region is is mirrored in in its food. A ploy is a good example of that, isn't it? Perfect example, because the way we see food is, no matter how delicious it is, what's important is not only the taste, but the context where it is served, the kind of restaurant you eat it in, the people that you eat it alongside with, um, the the language used to describe it, the rituals that are involved in serving it, like whether it's a pig picking or a tamale party. You know, each of these is so much a part of the culture. You know, we the way we identify ourselves, so many of us, is by our food heritage. And, you know, that's it's a great way to really discover the culture of this country with your taste buds. And eat it next to people who appreciate that because you're hanging out in a, in a local uh, diner or a, a local hole in the wall, which would have the regulars. Yes, and the regulars were really an education in themselves. I remember the first time we went to North Carolina, um, somebody said, would you like some bald peanuts? And I see Michael writing in his little book, B-A-L-D, peanuts. And of course, <laughs> they were boiled peanuts. You know? oh, bald. And so, you know, we had to kind of learn the lingo. And uh, I'm sure they thought that we spoke very strangely also. 
you know, I grew up, for me, going out to breakfast is a ritual, two eggs in East style breakfast. And uh, you get into a rut and you start ordering, you have this toast every time. But all over the country, you've got these modules that you can plug in. Rather than your <laughs> hash browns, you could have an alternative. Rather than your toast, you could have an alternative. Tell me just an example of some of the fun things you could have as an alternative to toast with your two eggs in style breakfast, like you mentioned. Well, country ham and biscuits. You could have country ham and cathead biscuits if you're in the South. Biscuits, okay. They're called cathead biscuits because they're knobby and big and they the resemble a cat's cat head. head. <laughs> if, you're in, if you're in the Southwest on the side of your huevos rancheros, you're probably going to get some big flour tortillas that are all wrapped up. Streakaline? Streakaline, is, which is a kind of similar to bacon that you'll find in some of the South. So maybe one of the rules, you could probably have toast if you wanted to, but one of the rules might be be adventurous and go for the alternative to toast. Yeah, I have nothing against toast, but as you just said, why <laughs> why eat toast in all 48 <laughs> contiguous states? Unless you're at the Watts Tea Shop in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which has ginger toast, which is one of the most delicious things Oh, in the world. my goodness. Now, these are the kind of tips you'd pick up in your book. I'm, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Jane and Michael Stern, who have, I swear, if anybody's eaten their way through the United States on road trips, these folks have. They've written a book, their classic road food, and now their new book, 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Um, Michael, what were you going to say? I was going to say that sometimes toast is not such a bad alternative. For example, at Doris's Diner in Fort Kent, Maine, we were on our ploy hunting expedition, and sure enough, they serve ploys on the side of eggs, and we ordered our ploys. However, the guys at the table next to us in the diner ordered toast, and when the toast came, we thought, oh, man, we have to order some of that, too, because Doris makes her own bread and toasts it, and they're big, thick hunks of whole-grain mm. toast the likes of which, you know, you can't find in the supermarket, believe me. Are you inclined to go for breakfast as far as sort of the great example of road food? I mean, I just celebrate breakfast when I'm on the road. Do you, do you sometimes tempt really? to eat breakfast for lunch almost? We uh, do. Yeah, and in fact, our favorite road food places are places that have strange hours, which is 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., and they're really breakfast-only, maybe early lunch places. We found that those places have the most perfect, wonderful examples of road food, the best blueberry muffins, mm. the best French toast stuff. We, we keep coming back to toast. Well, you know, and the other thing about breakfast that needs to be said is that not only is there a great variety of breakfast all around the country, but that's the meal, especially in a small town or even a city neighborhood, where the people who live there kind of get together and have coffee. So you're not only tasting the region, you know, in your mouth, but you're getting the real flavor of the region in terms of people talking about news and events yeah. and traffic and weather and politics, you know, whatever is on their minds. I mean, what a great way to rub elbows with people over breakfast. Well, that's that food anthropology again, isn't it? Yeah, you know, Michael and I started out as pointy-headed intellectuals. <laughs> we, we we met at Yale, and Michael was getting his Ph.D. in art history, and I was getting a master's in fine arts. And when we graduated, which was 1971, we decided that we had absolutely no interest in academia, that we had interest only in eating. And so we decided that we would combine our talent for, you know, looking at cultural wonders with our talent for eating a lot of food inexpensively, and the result was road food. Road food. Now, is it an anti-gourmet sort of thing? You know, in the beginning, it kind of was, because if you think back to the early 70s, there was really very little sense in this country that there was anything interesting to eat other than in the very deluxe restaurants where mm -hmm. you might eat some kind of continental food. It's only been over the last 20 or 25 years that we Americans have come to realize that our regional cuisine is fascinating. It's so varied, and it's always changing because we have such a diverse population that itself is always changing. That, you know, back then, if you were interested in food, it almost automatically meant you were a gourmet and mm -hmm. automatically kind of snobby. But that's all changed. You know, and now if you're interested in food, you could be a specialist in Cajun cuisine as much as in French cuisine. So this is really just a celebration of accessible food. 
That's exactly it. And, you know, the thing about road food is that it's very rare for a road food meal to cost uh, into the double digits even. Right. I mean, sometimes, you know, a great lobster will or a <laughs> great steak in Kansas City is going to set you back some. But most of the food we're talking about is very inexpensive. I'm wondering, is it when you see a truck stop and a lot of truckers there, is that still a good sign for quality when it comes to these uh, wonderful places? Not anymore. Um, those were the good old days. Right. In fact, the very first book that Michael and I wrote before Road Food was a book called Trucker, A Portrait of the Last American Cowboy. And we traveled with truckers cross-country for two years. And that is where we first started eating great regional American food. But unfortunately, truck stops are now kind of like fast food outlets. Ah, they are, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, you won't find too much of there are there. there are some exceptions. I'm thinking of Johnson's uh, truck stop north of uh, Colorado, which is home of the world's largest cinnamon roll. Oh, what's um, the one with the dinosaurs in California? Oh, the, yes, the Wheel Inn on mm. I-10 in Cabazon, California, where after you eat, you can go into the belly of a Brontosaurus and buy souvenirs. There's Henry's, Ohio, on Route 70 in Ohio, where you get some of the best pies in the Midwest. So there are exceptions. But what Jane said is true, that most of the truck stops are now as much a chain as McDonald's. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking road food today with the people who wrote the book. Jane and Michael Stern wrote Road Food and a new book, 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Their website is roadfood.com. Jane and Michael, when I, when I look at the title of your latest book, 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late, two things come to mind. It's a little ominous before it's too late. That could be before the fast food chains put all the characteristic diners out of business, or it could be before this um, not-so-healthy diet catches up with me. My doctor says I've got to change my eating styles. What did you mean by 500 things to eat before it's too late? Well, there's a third meaning too, Rick, and that is before the food police convince us that we ought not to be eating chicken fried steak and cherry pie and Ah. bacon cheeseburgers. You know, the thing is, people worry so much about what they eat. I mean, we're not saying somebody should eat a deep dish pizza six times a week, but, you know, if you don't have room in your diet for a wonderful burrito from the greatest place in New Mexico that makes them or for a date shake, from the deserts of California, then I really feel sorry for you. <laughs> a date shake. That sounds great. Oh, man, is that good. So you mean the food police like people who, sh- who shape uh, public uh, trends by advertising, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't well, not do? Just, yeah. not just advertising. In the little town in Connecticut that we live in, they, a year and a half ago, banned cupcakes from the elementary school. Mm. If, if a kid has a birthday, you're not allowed to bring a cupcake and you can mm. only bring in a banana or something. So, you know, this, <laughs> I mean, I think if I, if I didn't eat a cupcake when I was a kid, I would have had no reason to live on this earth. But I mean, Michael and I believe in food as a celebration and as a wonderful, happy thing that you sit with, with your friends, your family, and even elbow to elbow with strangers and enjoy rather than worry, 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 worry. Let's talk to a listener about that. Patricia's on the line in Elkton, Maryland. Patricia, thanks for your call. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, Jane and Michael. How are you doing? Hi. Hey, Patricia. Yes. What is your thought, Patricia? Well, I uh, had wanted to let the Stearns know that we have some amazing barbecue here in Maryland. And I, I know people think of Maryland as the crab capital of the country. But if you're on the I-95 corridor going from Philadelphia to Baltimore and you make it through Delaware, just as you cross the state line, there's a wonderful little place called Durham's Takeout Barbecue. And it's, run, it's a family-run business. It's in a little tiny log cabin just off the interstate, uh, not very far from all the chain restaurants and the truck stops. And they make the best dry rub barbecue in the area. Hmm. Now, when you say dry rub, you mean it's not all slurped up with the sauce? No, they always serve the sauce on the side, and um, mm. they have a, their original sauce is a wonderful, really nippy hot kind of sauce. Um, but they cater to the people who like the slurpy stuff by also offering a sweet sauce. But I have a friend who's a Texan, and he said their brisket is just like what he would get in Texas, which is really high praise. High praise indeed. I mean, Texans do not allow that anyone else can make barbecue as good as they do. <laughs> Absolutely. And my friend the Texan was really impressed with their barbecue. They also make ribs that are huge and succulent and wonderful. Wow. Mm, Durham's Takeout. Great. Durham's Takeout on the Maryland-Delaware state line. Yep. All right, Patricia. Thank you. Thanks. You're welcome. You know, it's, it's, it's fun to kind of travel around the country with this sort of... Uh, 
cultural insight in our focus. What about, let's, let's talk about that. Talk a little bit about New England. What are the must-eats in New England? Well, if you're in Rhode Island, you want to be sure to have some Johnny Cakes, which is their unique version of cornmeal pancakes. They're so serious about their Johnny Cakes in Rhode Island that there's a law that says they must be made from a certain kind of cornmeal. And if they're not, they're, you can't call it a Johnny Cake. And we just had for lunch, since Michael and I are in New England, had Rhode Island clam chowder for lunch, which is different than Manhattan clam chowder, which is the reddish stuff. New England, which is kind of more like Pacific Northwestern chowder, hmm. but Rhode Island chowder is just pure clam broth with potatoes and very elemental and briny. It tastes like the ocean. The know? other things in New England, you have to have a lobster roll, which is all the deliciousness of a lobster and butter without any of the fuss of cracking the shell. Unless you're in Maine and it's a cold lobster roll, which has mayonnaise in it. Right. And then, of course, there are pancakes. You have to go to Polly's Pancake Parlor in the White Mountains <laughs> of New Hampshire, where you pay one price and keep eating pancakes until you've had enough. And these are all like stone ground meals. And, of course, you get not just maple syrup. You get maple spread, which is kind of the consistency of peanut butter, but sweet like maple. You also get maple sugar. So you have your choice of three different kinds of maple to apply. Michael, where was it that we had that great boiled dinner in Vermont? The Great Boiled Dinner in Vermont was at uh, the Blue Band Diner, I believe, which yes, is a classic-looking, good old-fashioned diner with a menu probably about 6,000 items long. But in the morning, you want to start with uh, locally made donuts, and in the evening, you want to have boiled dinner, which is the classic corned beef, cabbage, and beets. And then the next morning... If they have any of that left over, you'll find red flannel hash on the menu. And if you're at Moody's Diner in hmm. Maine, hang on, hang on, hang have... on, hang on. Red, <laughs> red flannel hash. Tell me yes. more. What is that? Well, it's a corned beef hash that includes chopped up beets in it, and the beets turn the hash the color of you know those red flannel like long johns that farmers used to wear. Oh yeah, or red velvet cake. A red Whoa. velvet cake. Yeah. So it's and it, so it's a especially red corned beef hash. See, I could with see the beets me, in it. I could see me going dropping into a place a little overwhelmed because I don't know anything about this corner of the country and missing that on the menu. It'd be a real shame because you would be ordering toast. Yeah, <laughs> ordering toast. Red flannel <laughs> hash. Jane and Michael Stern are inspiring us to find culinary goodies in the diners and cafes across America today on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-RICK. You can also leave us your road food tips on our radio message board. It's at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking road food all over the United States. We're joined by Jane and Michael Stern, who wrote their classic book on road food called Simply Road Food, and their recent book called 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Megan emailed us from Denver's, Massachusetts, and uh, Megan writes, In the past, you've recommended Red's Eats in Bath, Maine for their ah, wonderful lobster yes. rolls. I can attest to the quality and quantity of their lobster meat. Uh, yet on travel boards, there are many negative reviews. What gives? The travel boards are all stupid because <laughs> Red's is, is, is one of the greatest. I mean, it is the definitive hot lobster roll. It is guaranteed at least all the meat from a one-pound lobster Whoa. piled into a toasted bun. You, oh. the, the lines to get this sometimes can be kind of daunting. I think that would be all the best. You don't have to mess with the shell and all the pretense of lobster. Oh, it's perfect. And uh, you just it's, it's the dig into it. My goodness. The other thing that you might like if you're, if you're a shell-phobe is at the main diner, they have a lobster pot pie, oh, which is one of yes. the great things. Lobster That's from their grandmother's recipe. And it's a real grandmotherly recipe in that the <laughs> lobster is mixed with... 
with like crumbled up Ritz cracker crumbs and also tomale, which is that kind of green stuff from inside the lobster that is the essence of deliciousness. Really? The green stuff inside the lobster? (laughs) Yeah, I know it doesn't sound appetizing, but it really is good. The the, the crab equivalent is what my mom always told me to get rid of because it'll kill you or something, but that's the best, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you don't see it, Michael. No, you, it does, it you doesn't wouldn't even know great. it was there. No, and you wouldn't want to eat it pure, but mixed in, it adds a oh, certain gotcha. je oh, Yeah, I bet. You know. Hey, uh, Megan also says the blueberry ice cream is wonderful there as well. And in your book, you talk about the best New England ice cream. Talk a little oh. bit about ice cream and, and regional differences and what we look for. Well, the strangest thing is that New England, you know, which is one of the coldest regions of the country, eats literally twice as much ice cream per capita as any other region. Wow. And I, don't, I can't explain that, but in terms of... I think because it doesn't melt here. Maybe <laughs> so. I mean, some of the unique flavors in New England, for example, you'll find grape nuts flavored ice cream, which, yes, indeed, it includes the cereal grape nuts, but what happens is that mixed in with the custard, the grape nuts soften and become streaks of grain, that can be really delicious. Michael, what's that wonderful place in Rhode Island that has the ginger ice cream? Yeah, Gray's. Gray's ice cream parlor. Big hunks of fresh mm. ginger in it. Yeah. Crystal, candy ginger, I mean. Let's go all the way to the other coast. If we're talking about ice cream, we'd have to talk about EC in Berkeley, California, where they make a – it's a habanero peach sorbet. That I mean, if you like spicy and sweet together, this is the thing you have to have. And then, of course, in the Midwest. Custard. Custards, like Ted Drew's custards and concretes, which are like a milkshake. And the reason they're called concretes is you theoretically should be able to turn the um, cup with the concrete in it upside down and it will not fall out. (laughs) Not theoretically. This is the way it is served to you out the window of Ted Drew's. You get your concrete in an upside down cup and nothing is dripping out of it. Oh my goodness. Well, that's Needless to say, a straw is useless. Hey, I'm speaking with Jane and Michael Stern. We're talking about road food all across the United States. Their latest book, 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Thumbing through this book, it is a wonderful guide. When I'm in England, there's a, a guide called the Good Pub Guide, which talks about mm-hmm. p- food and all the pubs. It's a wonderful book. And you just have it in the backseat of your car, and when you're in a little village, you whip it out and you see what, what should I be sure to be aware of. And you've got this book designed the same way. And I would just imagine, unless you're already an expert on this, this would be just a, a vital resource to have if you want to have memorable alternatives to fast food wherever you go in the United States. Let's take it further south now. We're going into the Deep South. Uh, somebody's uh, making their first road trip through the Deep South. What's on the checklist? Can we segue from red flannel hash? We should talk about red-eye gravy in Tennessee, which, again, a fabulous thing to have for breakfast. It's a slice of country ham, very salty, very almost astringent to eat. And the gravy on it is made from the ham drippings mixed in with a cup of coffee and swirled around, and it is uh, what you dip your biscuits into. And and they say it got its name because the coffee and the ham drippings don't ever really mix. So if you look in the gravy boat, it looks kind of like a bloodshot eye. I got it. Don't miss that in Tennessee then. Right. And the thing is, to talk about the South is just like so grand because there's a whole like low country cuisine along the coast of South Carolina where you get shrimp, shrimp, and grits. shrimp and creamy grits. And then, of course, there's all of Louisiana and New Orleans. And, you know, we all know about gumbo and jambalaya, but there are a lot of lesser-known specialties of, of that area, like the Cane River meat pies, which go way back, literally centuries, in northern Louisiana. Michael and I just were in North Carolina, way out in the boondocks, and we found um, cremated herring, which... <laughs> I think Michael could probably describe better than I can. It's available only from January through April if if the herring is running well up the Roanoke <laughs> River. There are a couple of places known as herring shacks that serve this. And again, only January through April. Wow. Now, you guys have been at this since the 1970s, and I can still see you coming into a town going, all right, red velvet whoopie pie or whatever's that. You bet. You got it. We're, yeah, we're still... You know, as passionate as we were on day one. I mean, we may not have fit into the same pants we fit in in 1971, but we're still as enthusiastic. Now, in Europe, there's food that's famous as sort of horrible food that reminds people of their poverty and yeah. of their ancestors, you know, and you have to have the lutefisk or if you have to have the bread soup yep. or whatever. In in America, is, is this kind of penitential food? You know, is there anything like that in America that it goes back to times when, when it was really tough and this is what all they could afford and today it's kind of a, a standard item on a menu? 
Well, they may not let me back into Texas for saying this, but chicken fried steak is one of those dishes that very often is kind of an impoverished tasting dish. At its best, it's delicious and even deluxe, but the bad versions are like depression food. I can think of something even more elemental, and that's uh, in Oklahoma, where the Dust Bowl was. It's called a soak, and it's a square of cornbread um, with buttermilk poured on it. And the kind of fancier version is a soak with pinto beans on the top. And it's really a meatless meal. It's really about as elemental. Back to the Dust Bowl days, huh? Exactly. And they still eat it there. I think the last time we were there, we had it with a big slice of onion on the top, which was actually pretty good. And it was a full and filling lunch for, I think it was $2.95. So you got food anthropology and a little food history there, too, as well. John emailed us uh, in Pittsburgh. We we passed by Pittsburgh uh, a minute ago, but let's just uh, look at his points here. He says, uh, come to Pittsburgh for unique eating. Piermonti's sandwiches, uh, that's a sandwich with meat, cheese, coleslaw, and French fries all piled high on Italian bread. French fries at the original hot dog shop. Fish sandwich, hey, Pittsburgh's a Catholic town, and turkey Devonshire sandwiches, a perfect recipe for Thanksgiving leftovers. Wow, we're familiar with all of them except for the turkey Devonshire sandwich. Write that down. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a sandwich with cranberry sauce, turkey, and stuffing in it. You know, I bet that's it. Because it's a perfect recipe for Thanksgiving leftovers. Sounds good. Yeah, but you know the, the Pramonti sandwich, which has everything, including the French fries, stuffed into it, yeah. was actually supposedly created for truck drivers uh-huh. who had like three minutes to spare. They jumped out of their trucks, ran into Pramonti's, and asked for a, a, a meal real quick. So Pramonti's threw everything inside the bread, and they could eat it as quickly as possible. There's also Enrico's biscotti, oh. which is right down the street from that. And <laughs> am I right that Primanti's is open? 24, 24 hours. 24 hours. <laughs> All the time. Never yeah. closes. Yep. In fact, it's very interesting there at around 2 a.m. Oh, boy. <laughs> if you like people watching. Yeah. <laughs> now, all over the country, of course, fries are a standard, but there are different ways to um, garnish fries or, or, or season fries. What are some variations, some surprising variations you might stumble onto with your French fries? Well, of course, you got the, the basic gravy on top of fries. You got right. chili cheese fries, uh, which are popular throughout the country, especially, strangely enough, again, in New England. And in New Orleans, you have French fries with debris. Do you oh, know what that is, yes. Rick? No, what is debris? Okay, well, it's, it's well, sort of... <laughs> we would say debris, but it's debris, which is... D-E-B-R-I-S. Oh, which is all the little bits and squiggles and pieces of beef that, that fall off it when you're... When you're when slicing you, it? A roast ah, beef. What, yeah. when you scrape off the cutting board, you oh, throw that onto your French fries, and it's, it's delicious. It's sort, of, sort of the grappa of beef. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> nice. Brilliant. Nice. I love it. And then we were recently out west in central California where they grow a lot of garlic. There, one of the most popular side dishes is garlic fries, where you get French fries just heaped with little bits of minced garlic. Oh, and yeah. Believe, you don't want to... You don't want a man a kissing booth after you've been eating. Oh, no. Hey, well, that reminds me of uh, another related thing, stadium food. We've got, you know, a big deal is going to the stadium (laughs) to eat. All over the country, Uh, is stadium food pretty uniform or does that have regional specialties? It's changing. We don't go to too many sporting events, but I'll tell you, our friends who do tell us that the level of stadium food has just risen beyond belief. It used to be, you know, a horrible boiled yeah. wiener on a, right. you know, a cup of beer or something. And now it's it's kind of like elevated the way some fancier airports have fabulous food in them. Right. Well, that's just, to me, it's it's uh, getting more like the, the fun of uh, eating on the road is eating at the stadium. It's getting, it's getting more creative. Hey, also, mm-hmm. there's this struggle between, you know, the dominance of fast food places and threatening the classy old world diner and the fun diner mm. architecture. What is the state of the classic diner right now and diner architecture? There are some... Is anybody thriving. building these new weird little no. buildings? Nobody does that no, anymore. The new diners look kind of like the, the Pantheon, but covered with chrome and They're kind of Christmas lights. They're very, very Baroque. Mm. But just a little heartwarming story. In uh, Pennsylvania, there was a diner um, that... It was called the Dutch Kitchen. Um, and it was, it was a classic, beautiful, old silver dining car with pink formica inside. Just it a, serves the seven sweets and seven sours of local Amish Pennsylvania yeah. Dutch food. 
And across the street, it was right near the exit off of I-91, just about across the street from it, a um, Cracker what, Barrel, a cracker opened, barrel up. opened up. And everyone who loved this diner thought, oh, no, that's the end of it. Well, guess which closed a few years later? The Cracker Barrel went away oh, and the no. diner is still oh, there. Oh, right. Well, that's, that's a <laughs> triumph the for the diners. You're going exactly. to You're driving through Texas, big state. It's hot. You're hungry. Where do you go? You want to go to Lockhart, Texas, if you happen to be anywhere near there. That is the barbecue capital of Texas. And as our caller earlier said, Texans are really serious about barbecue, which is nothing like or very little like the barbecue you get in the Carolinas, for example. It's, for one thing, it's beef. And for another, it's brisket. And sauce is anathema. You almost never get sauce And also hot links, Michael. And on is- the same pit, they cook these hot links that are, are just – they're beef links, and they're so taut – from the pit that when you slice into one, you have to angle the knife in such a way that the juices are aimed away from you or else they're going to splatter all over your shirt. And of course, chili. Michael and I wrote a book about chili. In fact, it was called Chili Nation and it came out about, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I remember in the Dallas newspaper, we had a recipe for chili from every state in America. And the Dallas Morning News wrote, this is a, an interesting book because there's only one recipe worth cooking, which is, of course, the Texas one. And, you know, they didn't like any of the others. But every part of the country has its own chili. But truly, Texas is king. I'm speaking with Jane and Michael Stern. It's so much fun to talk to people who have found their niche. And Jane and Michael have certainly found their niche. <laughs> if you want to learn more about their work on the road, they get to eat their way across America and write about it. You can find it at their website, roadfood.com. Their classic book, Road Food, and their latest book, 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Jane and Michael, I was just in the Bay Area, California, mm-hmm. and I, I, I really wanted to go over to Oakland. I'd heard about the taco trucks, and I drove up, oh, yes. up International Boulevard in Oakland, uh, and it was so much fun. And I, I just wanted to eat lunch four times in a row, stopping at these taco trucks. Found a great one in the Goodwill parking lot right there on International Boulevard. Well, you know, that is an aspect of the restaurant business that seems to be just thriving and burgeoning. Yeah, which trucks is, are the wave of the trucks future. Trucks in general, the taco trucks in particular. Our personal favorite on International Boulevard is one called El Paisa, where they just make these gorgeous tacos. I mean, really mm. just – they're like cover photos of tacos. I mean, just beautiful, sparkling ingredients. I mean – carne seca or birria or even chicken, whatever the ingredients you want. I mean, they're just wonderful. You know, the whole Bay Area, needless to say, is a road food paradise. It's famous for its kind of upscale food and fancy food, but in terms of we actually found some of the best red flannel hash we ever ate in the Bay Area. Right, and you know where it's another truck paradise is Santa Maria, California, where they have barbecued tri-tip steak sandwiches. And again, Saturday and Sunday... All these little food trucks park in, you know, parking lots all around, and you can get wonderful truck food there. Also, Tucson, Arizona has— um, The Sonoran hot dog. There yeah, are probably the... <laughs> 100 vendors throughout Tucson that serve—it's an all-beef hot dog wrapped in bacon, grilled, and then put in a great big capacious bun along with jalapeno sauce, mustard, mayonnaise— oh. Peppers. Okay, you what guys. Am I you guys. Hold Tomatoes. On. You you owe it to your readers to have a chapter in here on how to work up an appetite because I mean <laughs> you got to have and a, a little, constant. How do you little do drool it? Little towel. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. This is Eating with Rick Steves right now, and we're talking with Jane and Michael Stern. They wrote the book on eating your way across the United States on a road trip. The classic road food. Uh, their latest book, Five Hundred Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Their website, roadfood.com. Jane and Michael, let's just um, wrap things up with a a challenge for you. You've got a friend. He just knows everything about the fast food joints, and he's going across the country. And you want to turn him into somebody who appreciates an alternative to fast food when you're traveling to get into that food anthropology stuff. And you just want to be evangelical in a way to get him turned on to the wonders of eating with a more adventurous spirit. One stop, what would it be? I would make him stop in El Reno, Oklahoma, because that is home of the onion fried burger. And if if this guy is accustomed to fast food restaurants, this won't be a great leap for him to appreciate the fact that there are four different restaurants in this one little town that each specialize in their own variation of a hamburger cooked with onions like smashed into the meat so they kind of meld with it. And you get this unbelievably fragrant hamburger on a bun with whatever toppings you want. So it's not that far from fast food theoretically, but in terms of taste, it's a, it's a universe away. And I would take him to the best fried chicken 
oh, yeah. in the world, in the universe, in the Milky Way, Keaton's Fried Chicken. Um, Statesville, North Carolina. And he would never go to fast food again. You've convinced me. I can hardly wait to get out there and uh, actually uh, sink my teeth into some of these ideas. We've been talking with Jane and Michael Stern, their book, 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Thanks for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Bon appetit. Or good appetite. Or dig in. <laughs> I guess dig <laughs> in is hard to say. Eat hearty. Eat All right. till it ouches. <laughs> Enough of this bon appetit stuff. Dig <laughs> in. <laughs> Tell us about a tasty impression from your travels or maybe about your hometown in the form of an original haiku. The radio section of the ricksteves.com website has details for sending us yours. Here are some recent hometown haiku our listeners have sent us. Amy Schumann from Cleveland gets to hear Travel with Rick Steves on Saturdays on WCPN and Sundays on WKSU. She sent us this haiku about her city. Beautiful city, the U.S. best-kept secret. Cleveland, Ohio. Barbara Martinez moved to Savannah from Chicago and hears us on Georgia Public Broadcasting's WSBH. She sends us a haiku about both of her cities. City on the lake, worldly, artistic, friendly, sweet home Chicago. And nestled by the sea, charming historical squares connect Savannah. And Mike Mahalik from Squim, Washington, describes what it's like to bicycle on one of the islands near his home on the Olympic Peninsula. San Juan bike touring. Spirit soars high and pulls me like a big blue sail. Tell us about your travels in an original haiku poem. There's a link for sending them to us in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. I think I'll call you Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at WSHU Radio in Fairfield, Connecticut for their help today. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 130 cities across the country. Help yourself to free podcasts of past shows and Rick's audio tours of Europe's greatest sites in the radio section of our website. For the latest on Rick's radio and TV work, his guidebooks and his European tours with small groups, visit ricksteves.com.